Welcome to Song and Story. More than our usual exploration of art and the creative process, this bonus episode is a public service announcement. It's a conversation that hopefully raises awareness about the oft-forgotten members of our society and inspires you, the listener, to action in your own community. My guest is Michael Vanderberg. He is not a singer-songwriter or a musician by trade. Just one part of Michael's full-time job involves managing and overseeing a cluster of homeless shelters here in my hometown of Dayton, Ohio. What he has to say about how this work is affected by a global health crisis is so important, and I want people to hear his story. But this podcast is about stories and songs, so Michael earned his spot on our roster by singing a classic. Q-R-S-T-U-V-W-X-Y and Z. The St. Vincent de Paul Society of Dayton works year-round to provide emergency assistance and supportive services to adults and families who are on the brink of becoming homeless or who are already homeless. It's a huge operation, and Michael is the executive director. Last year, on Memorial Day, 13 tornadoes touched down in and around Dayton. Hundreds of homes were destroyed. The number of men, women, and children seeking shelter increased. And Michael took on even more responsibility when St. Vincent de Paul was asked to help coordinate recovery efforts. Barely two months after that disaster, on August 4th, 2019, Dayton, Ohio, was added to the growing list of U.S. cities tragically affected by what many have referred to as the pandemic of mass shootings. Whether we're dealing with the violent psychological sickness at the heart of widespread gun violence or a novel virus that disrupts life the world over, the weight of the responsibility borne by the first responders in our communities has become ever more apparent. But when the directives from our local governments, our governors, and the federal government is, get what you need, then go home and stay there, how often do we consider the fact that not everyone has a home to go back to? On this, the staff and volunteers at the St. Vincent de Paul Society of Dayton are first responders doing their part to help bear the weight. And Michael Vanderberg is on the front line. Since I've known him, he always seems positive, ready, and willing to serve. He has never seemed tired, cynical, or the least bit curmudgeonly. So when our conversation began with this frank admission, um, I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a mess. I knew that the story of the struggle to serve the homeless during the rise of COVID-19 needed to be told. I came here a little over two years ago, and at that time, we averaged about 340, 330 or so men, women, and children every night. Now, our average is 440, 450 per night. So, it's certainly gone up substantially over the last two years. Um, 
much more so in the last year since the tornadoes. You know, right now we're down a little bit. Um, we have the fewest number of kids in shelter that we've had in a long time. I think yesterday it was 23 or 24 or something like that. And it, and we've had as many as 120 kids in shelter over the last two years. So that's great. Um, but, you know, in Dayton, Ohio, 400 people a night in shelter, that's a lot of people. It, it is. <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not a small town, but we're by no means a, a big city. Right. And I, and I also should say a couple other things about that. Um, one is one of our hallmarks at St. Vincent de Paul Society is that we don't turn people away. In recent days, there have been smaller shelters within 100 miles of us in Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, who have had to close. And some of their folks have ended up with us. So you know, being a leader in this and being as large as we are as an operation, sometimes we, we have guests that aren't really from Dayton. Sure. And, and that's simultaneously uh, a sad and a happy thing. I mean, it's sad because they don't have the mechanisms in place to take care of them where they're from, but it's happy in that we're, we have the privilege of serving them. And, you know, as the, as the leader of this organization, I'm happy about that. I'm happy that we can do that. I, I'm, I'm happy that we can really excel at what we do. But I, I sure wish that other communities would, would uh, up their game, so to speak. Yeah. For me, my first awareness of COVID-19 being something coming down the pike um, that I would probably have to deal with in some sort of emergency management capacity was back in late January. Um, I think it was January uh, 28th, the Ohio Department of Health had a statewide call with local health departments and healthcare providers regarding uh, COVID-19. And um, because of my prior involvement in leading um, Memorial Day Tornadoes emergency management efforts, I had been asked to be the designated person to handle materials management for disasters for an eight county area around states. And so, Materials management basically means in a disaster, um, you're the point person for donated goods, whether it's bottles of water, food, clothing, whatever. And that was, as you might recall, a role that St. Vincent de Paul and Dayton took on after the tornadoes. Right. And and so, and I had been asked by emergency management you know, in case we ever have another disaster, would you be the <laughs> and and that had been just a that had been finalized just a few weeks before all this happened. Okay. So, you know, I that puts me on mailing distribution lists to find out about what's coming down the pike. And and to be sure, there's a whole lot of things that get reported 
through emergency management channels that um, are far less that I that I would never hear about. Yeah, they're just they're routine things. They're things like you know where there was a fatal car crash in certain counties the night before or whatever, um, where there's flooding or a flood watch or anything that's a potential disaster brewing anywhere in the state. I, I get regular reports talking about that kind of thing. And so I was vaguely aware that this was coming uh, back at the end of January. So, yeah, it was it was kind of right in that first part of March, I guess it was, um, that I really knew that this was going to be a big thing that had to be managed. And... Uh, and, you know, when you have a leadership role in that, there's there's a certain face you have to put on. And um, but there's also the realization of. Of all that's wrong. <laughs> and there's the realization of. Unmet expectations. From people you thought you could predict to behave in a particular way. Uh, that you thought would be a good way, and it ends up not being such a great way. So that's that's tough. It, it wears on you, and it, it's it's um, it's very tempting to get into a, a a very negative mindset and to complain and um, whine. I believe Pope Francis actually said something about that in the last day or so. Uh, about the temptation to complain or, or um, you know, be in a negative mindset when things aren't going well. And I've been definitely feeling that because when you're on the front lines of any war, which is, that, which is what we're in, this is a war, and, and the war is with a, a hidden enemy, and actually it's more than one hidden enemy, one of the the obvious hidden enemy is the virus, right? But the other not so obvious hidden enemy is fear. Right. And and so people that you think you know pretty well and you think will act very predictably given a challenge, when fear takes over, all bets are off, man. The concept of allies in peacetime is really pretty cool because you develop partners that you work with under normal circumstances. You train together, you serve together, you complement each other with your different gifts and you, you recognize how you are much more, you are, you're stronger unified with partners um, than you could ever possibly be on your own. And then war comes, and you're on the front lines with your partners, with your allies, and your ally looks at you on the right and says, this is scary, I'm out of here, and leaves. And your ally on the left looks at you and says, wow, the ally on your right just left. Why am I still here? I'm out of here. And then you're left by yourself. And when you are determined to be on the front lines, it's much, 
it's much more difficult for you to achieve your objective without your allies. Sure. And and you presumed all along that your allies would be with you, and then all of a sudden they're not there. And uh, so that that's that's been tough. And and when you're the leader of that group, your people are looking to you, and they're seeing what's happening. And then they're thinking, what is wrong with you, dude? Why are we still here? Mm-hmm. So so I, I would say what's really kept me going and what's been a rallying point for me is the fact that I'm a person of faith and my organization is full of people of faith. And we have a different context to understand abandonment. To understand sure. vulnerability, to understand um, a sense of mission and purpose that, that's about something greater than ourselves or our household. So in terms of the allies on the left and on the right that they kind of fled, is this like individual like uh, people or businesses that provide you with resources or services that you now just you've always had and now you don't and it's providing a strain on the service yes all of the above okay yeah has anybody else kind of stepped in to to fill some of those roles Uh, back to the war analogy you hire mercenaries because you can all for a price you can always find somebody to stand with you Sure, and and that's you know that 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 of course is not a preferred way to operate, but you know when you're at war, you use what you can. Right. So, and the other thing is that you know not everybody is fit to fight. Sure. So, so there are some people that um, be you know because it's wartime and there's a front line and it's dangerous. Um, I don't want them on the front line. It's it, you know, they're they're not that, that's not prudent to have them there. But on the other hand, there are young, fit folks who, you know, don't have a frail person at home they're caring for. So, you know, if, if you know, the, the risk to them is relatively low. And again, if they have a sense of duty, a sense of purpose, a sense of something uh, that, that's focused on the greater good, whether it's in a faith context or not, um, they should be on the front lines. And and I expect them to be on the front lines if they're part of my organization. And I, I think one of the things that's lost in our culture is this patriotic sense of duty, um, whether you call it service above self or, um, you know, putting your life on the line for the greater good. You know, in generations past, I mean, imagine the greatest generation when they were teenagers and young 20s. Imagine them hiding at home instead of going out and fighting. Right. Um, That would not have been culturally acceptable. You know, maybe this is why your current circumstance is the way it is because at this point we are told the best thing that you can do to fight this war is to stay home 
don't see anybody. Don't, you know, interact with as few people as possible. If you need groceries, go out and get groceries and then get home. Um, so in that sense, like we're, we're kind of asked to stay away and stay in the background as much as possible. But given the nature of what you do, and, and I think I saw you put something up on Facebook about this the other day, the way you articulated it is that not everybody has a home to go back to, to retreat to. And that's exactly why you do what you do and your organization exists. You, you attempt to provide a temporary home, a temporary shelter for people who don't have it. And, you know, in that sense, people who would normally be called and ready and willing to go and fight on the front line of the war, it almost seems like their call right now is an inversion of what's usually expected. And that seems to make everything trickier. It, it is. Yes, it is trickier. And, and the, the hard part about this, I think, is the public health authorities, they need to keep their messaging very simple. Because the simpler it is, the more likely it is people are going to follow it en masse. Yeah. And that's what they want. I mean, you want nearly everyone to do that. But at the same time, people presume that police officers and firefighters and EMTs and doctors and nurses are going to show up for work. Right. <laughs> that's a given. Um, it, it's a little it's a, it's a bit of a reach for people to realize that even, you know, yes, those are mission critical roles, but so is serving people in, who are in dire need of clothing, food and shelter. Right. And um, that that gets lost. And it's a complicated me message. The frustrating part is. I'm not talking about. The general. Public shying away from going out and volunteering. I'm talking about people who are in this business of serving people in dire need, whether as volunteers or as staff people who just go away. They just leave. I mean, imagine if if our police and fire and healthcare people just said, no, man, this is not for me. The chips are down. I don't want to get sick. I'm staying home. Yeah. Uh, it, it's somehow we know that that's not acceptable. But for some reason, when it comes to serving people whose basic needs are not going to be met, that's not related to health care, that's not related to crime, that's not related to their house burning down, somehow that's acceptable culturally. I, I believe I saw you also post something on Facebook, I don't know if it was today or yesterday, um, about a current fundraising effort or goal that you have. Um, is this to fund the quote-unquote mercenaries that you were talking about? Um, a, a good bit of it is. Okay. Um, other, you know, other parts of it are just because we have a a hygiene slash cleaning regimen that is much more ramped up than usual. Can you talk a little bit about what your goal is with that and where you are at the moment? Well, everything's kind of a moving target, so it's all estimates, but. Our normal operating expenses, we predict, will double or even uh, perhaps more than that, more than double um, over the next 90 days. 
but we've also implemented a plan to increase the social distance space, or as I like to call it, the anti-social distance space <laughs> within our shelters. So we, we did that by negotiating um, to um, get hotel rooms Oh, really? For a certain number of our guests. And um, as you can imagine, that's a very expensive thing to do because even even a discounted rate with a with a hotel working with us, that's still somewhere north of fifty dollars a night. So you know we're we're going to be spending likely over a couple hundred thousand dollars just to have um, enough space in our shelters for people to have a safe distance between them. And um, that is no small thing. That, that's, that's very, very uh, difficult to establish and to maintain, not just the expense, but the logistics, right. because we have to get people back and forth. We have to make sure that they have food. Uh, we have to keep them safe. We have to manage um, the likelihood that you know, some will be sick and how do we keep them separated from others? And and so it, this all becomes very complicated. And, and there is this unknown journey of expense, both financial expense and people expense, right? The, the stress, the, the, just the work of getting this all done, again, for the greater good, that we're, we're just in this fog of war. And um, so that that brings to mind all the normal things that might not get the attention that I would like to give them. So that, that creates um, another level of stress around all of this for, for everybody who's engaged. And, and I don't mean to say in any of this um, raw sharing of concern and where my head is right now, I don't mean to say that there aren't amazing gifts and bright spots and heroic people and um, just unbelievably awesome behavior from both the people who are serving others and the people who are being served. So that, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to witness. But I do think it's important for people to know that people who are in great basic need of clothing, food and shelter are so often left behind or pushed aside um, when when things are normal. Well, and 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 when, yes, and when things are crazy and not normal, um, they're very very easily pushed aside. So it, it it is it is a challenging time, but I am certain that everyone who stays engaged will be the better for it myself included it's it is a beautiful thing to see the best in people come out in a in a stressful period though as i'm in this fog right now what troubles me the most is when the worst comes out in people Um, especially people that you think you think they you know how they're going to behave and they don't behave that way 
and it strikes me in the moment that fear is really to blame. What are the numbers that we're talking about here? Yeah, so, um, you know, the normal cost per night for someone staying in shelter is right around $28. But, of course, having to expand our footprint into the hotels for the COVID-19 crisis, those expenses just for the room is over, you know, $50 a night. Sure. Have the additional expenses of having staff on site and food and transportation and that sort of thing. So um, it's not, well, there's nothing uh, economical about a crisis. So if Dayton, Ohio were instead, uh, you know, a, a South Carolina coast town, then we would we would be familiar with FEMA and we'd be, be familiar with disasters, right? I right. mean, we'd be waiting for the hurricane to come all the time. But we, we just weren't, we weren't on a footing to handle a serious tornado. We weren't on a footing to handle a mass shooting. And we certainly weren't on a footing to handle... COVID-19, but having all of these, the the first two as uh, precursors to the last, it certainly put us in a a better position. And those of us who did pivot our attention and our our resources to these other disasters, um, that really was a great sandbox for us to prepare for what we're in the middle of now, hmm. you know, and, and all the new relationships that we formed with, with the others who rose to the occasion, that's certainly paid off. And, and I, and I don't say any of these things to be, um, dismissive or critical of anybody. I, I share them from the standpoint of this, this is what it looks like, uh, on the inside um, for organizations that do have the boots on the ground and and are serving at the front lines of these disasters. And, and I certainly don't want to miss the primary roles of the regular emergency responders who are awesome heroes every day of the year. And, you know, of course they respond amazingly in crises just like they do in their daily dangers that they face and you know that they've gotten so good at it we just assume they're going to be there and we don't really talk much about it because they're so awesome and we're just so used to it we're so accustomed to it right um and we have we have that expectation that they're going to be there one of the things that surprised me most about the situation regarding people in dire need is again how many well not really how many but how um, people haven't really expressed any expectations you know that we stay on the front lines I mean I, I I've had people ask me frequently why are you guys still open 
as if you know to them it would be completely acceptable choice if we would close right you know 400 people were out on the street without a place to live and 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 that that part is just i never really thought of that before i never i never thought that that anyone would 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 think that that could be a an acceptable choice well i personally i i think that says a, a lot about your character and you don't have to do anything with that because it's a compliment and i know those are sometimes odd to to take but (laughs) i i mean i've been thinking about you a lot in the midst of this and um you know we're in a situation right now like we currently don't have any income at the moment and even in spite of that you know like we're oddly at peace with that you know because we we have enough to get by uh for what we think the duration of this might be you know it's not ideal but in a very you know non-cynical way it is what it is and honestly like we're we're okay like there's nothing really that we need but i know that there are people who are in situations that are way way worse uh, than ours Um, at at the moment you know we're not really vulnerable in the way that so many of the people that you serve are and that's that's kind of why i I wanted to have you on to to talk about this you know when you're describing the more negative i guess side of of the experience you know you're it's inevitable that you're there are going to be failings and that you're going to have to confront them and and deal with them and be saddened by them. And um, in in light of everything you just said, that there are places fairly close to us um, that offer the same services that you do that have shut down for whatever reason. I think that just amplifies your point that we need to remember the poor. You know, don't don't forget the poor. And these people get left behind. Um, they become so easily an afterthought. And I know that the St. Vincent de Paul organization, and this is something I know about you, um, that it is the spirit of Christ that compels you to remember them. I, I don't know if I have a question associated with this. Uh, I, I, I suppose, in one sense, it's a very elaborate compliment to you into your character, into your person, and I say it with gratitude. Well, before I get into that, you know, I, I didn't I didn't do any of this. I inherited it. <laughs> so But you took it on. Like you wanted to take it on. Yeah, no doubt. And uh I I'm I'm passionate about that. But I think it's important for people to know that one of the reasons why we can make the choice to endure <laughs> And we can make the choice to always be there for everybody who comes to us is that we've been operating as a unit in Dayton for over 70 years. Mm-hmm. And people like your grandfather, they, they were amazing foundation block, you know, foundation for, for us to be doing what we're doing today. So, um, you know, we, we're financially strong because of people like him, we have built a, a, a great culture of service among thousands of people. 
so that when things get bad, even when a lot of folks flee, there's still plenty around to help. Um, well, not plenty, but many <laughs> to help. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's important to remember that it's generations of committed folks that made our organization what it is. And I guess if I'm going to take credit for anything over the last two years of that history is that I haven't intentionally run it into the ground. (laughs) 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 But but beyond that, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know if I can be a symbol for that. Okay. But I, I just think it's important to, to realize that, um, you know, there all these fruits have been from seeds sown for generations. Sure, and um, that that is that is no small thing. Every year that I've been here, we've been financially blessed uh, by people who remembered us in their will. You know, thirty years ago, who finally passed away. You know, things like that, they really come together to make everything work. So, hmm. I mean, it, it's it's just, it's every day that I'm able to get out of, out of my office and walk 100 feet over into our women and family shelter. I, I can do that at any time and start a conversation with somebody who tells me their story. And, you know, they, they may or may not say something that has to do with us and what we've done for them. But um, they'll very easily talk about their faith and they'll talk about God. They'll talk about what they've learned and they'll talk about other people in the shelter who have been there for them. And um, that's a daily thing. I mean, it's like all you have to do is walk to the, walk to the tree to, to pick the finest apple. I mean, it, that for us, having the opportunity to be in an authentic relationship with the people that we serve is just an amazing blessing. Oftentimes it's, um, it's folks that are very severely mentally ill, but yet we're their family and we've learned their ins and outs just like they've learned our ins and outs. And it's a tremendous, um, blessing to be with them. It's also in this time of COVID-19, I can say there's a lot of fear going around the shelters, too. And to be able to sit with someone and, and listen to their fears and, you know, be that sounding board for them and talk them through their anxieties, that's an amazing interaction. It, it just, it, it's like this amazingly woven fabric of diversity in concern of people in shelter but the one common thing that they have is that they they're not attached to things like you and I are right they don't have them right and the other thing that that is just this is a daily occurrence but again in this heightened in this time of heightened anxiety they really look out for each other which is an amazing thing to, to witness. I mean, I, I might have six staffers on a shift trying to help 250 people, 
certainly the 250 people are getting much more from each other than they're getting from us. Right. Um, because just, just by the numbers, uh, it has to work out that way. And, you know, when you're staying night after night with the same folks over a long period of time, um, there is a, a certain magic of community that comes together. And in a time of crisis, that's much more palpable. And then on the part of staff, um, it's kind of like the old adage that if you want something done right, you find the most active, busiest person with the most things on their plate, and you go to them instead of going to the people who seem to have all the time in the world. And in a time of crisis, that's even more true. I mean, you, you've got real troopers who always step up and are always looking for more things to do and are always energetic and always, uh, seemingly always, uh, fearless. Um, it, it's amazing to see them in action. And that goes for both uh, employees and for volunteers. I mean, that's, that's a, an attitude, that's a disposition that is, is really fun to be around. Well, I mean, even yourself, you know, I was a little late buzzing you in here because I was having technical difficulties and I, I texted you, sorry, troubleshooting on my end. And you said, no worries. I have unlimited work to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so people know it's, it's 937 on Wednesday night and you are still in your office. Well, I did go home for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Like on on average, how late are you? What time are you going in? How late are you there? Oh, I have no idea. I don't keep track of that stuff. I just go until I'm tired, and then I go home. Every day, anyway, or now? Like especially now? Uh, especially now. Okay. Yeah, I uh, a couple days ago, I went to bed at eleven, and I woke up at two forty-five. And I was, I felt completely refreshed. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go to work. So I came to work at four o'clock and I went and visited each shelter, you know, which is an unusual time for me to do that, which was great because then I get to see people I don't usually get to see on staff. Sure. And then, uh, of course, I was completely wiped out by the end of that day. But uh, so that things like that happen every once in a while where I, and it, it just comes back to this mania, um, adrenaline fueled mania. Yeah. And, and I can keep that up for a few weeks, but then I'll crash. What does crashing look like for you? And then I have to cut it off or it's going to take me forever to edit this. Well, I, I, I just I, I, I want to point out that your opening question is what set us on this trajectory because I'm being completely honest <laughs> of where I am right now. And I'm not, I'm not at all interested in candy coating anything. Right. And I appreciate that because I want people to, to think of you, to be aware of you. And if the spirit so moves them to, to do what they can to support it, uh, to support the mission. And, um, I, you know, I think when I asked you, how are you doing personally? My follow-up was going to be, you know, uh, how is everything with the organization doing? But it seems that at this point, 
you're so deep in it that uh, it, there's no separating <laughs> the man. No, there there's no separating the man from the movement. But it, but at the same time, I I'm an optimist, and I want to I I want to affirm the best in people, um, and I don't I don't want to be a whiner or a complainer. But I think that too many people refuse to talk about tough, negative aspects of humanity because they don't want to be perceived as a whiner or a complainer. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, for the record, I have taken nothing that you've said as you complaining or even just you venting frustrations. Like for me, for me, it's painting a picture of everything that you're dealing with and everything that you're dealing with has to be dealt with and you you are the one you're not doing it alone i understand that but um but you're overseeing the effort and that's what i wanted to kind of draw draw people's attention to um is there any kind of last pitch that you can make for ways that people can help whether it's locally or for their own organizations that are dealing with this in their own hometowns or um, how people might be able to financially, where they can go to financially contribute to, uh, to the increase in costs. Yeah, so for, for any organization like mine, I have three things that I ask people to consider. Number one is pray. Um, we are people of faith in God and uh, we direct all of our attention properly to him. What we do is a response uh, to his challenge to uh, go and spread the gospel. And we do it in a very particular way, um, focusing on corporal works of mercy. But number one is always prayer. And that's that's the thing that, that gets missed most, and it's something that every, every person of faith can do. Um, and even people without faith, it's something that they can reflect on and see how that might become part of their lives. Number two is financial gifts. So in our case, um, that's most easily done at our website, which is stvincentdayton.org. Stvincentdayton.org, and three is um, gifts of um, materials that we can use. So material goods. So for us, um, the easiest thing is a, is our Amazon list. Is that that's accessible on your website? Yeah, that's accessible on our website. And then for local folks, it's gifts of furniture. In particular, we're the only furniture bank around. Um, nobody wants to deal with furniture because it's heavy. It's hard to store. It's hard to move. Um, but we're we're the only furniture bank around, so okay. that's that's a, a huge help. And of course, you know, donations of clothing and household goods and that sort of thing that you can bring to us. But on our Amazon list, you'll find things like underwear and um, bed linens. So twin twin sheets sets. Uh, towels, washcloths, you know, clothing of big sizes that are not common for people to donate uh, because there aren't too many people that are large sized. So, you know, when people go, and I'm not, I'm not playing favorites with Amazon, but most everybody has an Amazon account. 
Um, yeah, so those are the three things. And, the, you know, and of course, the fourth ancillary thing for locals is um, to volunteer. This is a tough time to volunteer in that um, we don't, we generally don't want older folks to come um, because of the risk of uh, COVID-19. I mean, we don't encourage them to come, but just like we don't turn uh, people away who have needs, we also try not to turn away people who want to volunteer. Yeah. So, um, you know, we are a volunteer organization. Those of us who are employed by St. Vincent de Paul Society, it's because the volunteers hire us. Hmm. So, I mean, we're nothing without volunteers. We wouldn't even exist without volunteers. So that's that's uh, something that local folks can do. And, and volunteers perform a number of functions. They um, help serve meals. They um, provide information to guests at the front desks of our shelters. Um, they, they serve right alongside our employees doing all, all sorts of various tasks. And they're amazing and, and they're valued. And, um, so volunteering is a, is a fourth one. But the three universal things are, are really prayer, financial gifts, and uh, the material gifts. I, I would underscore that suffering is where love has an opportunity to grow. And it's the best soil for love. It really is. And it's, it's dirty. It's ugly. It's, it's awful in its grossness. But yet it's the most fertile soil for love. And I think that when we come on the other side of this COVID-19 crisis, those who have looked for love will have experienced it in great, great quantity in their lives. If you appreciated my conversation with Michael, please go to stvincentdayton.org. That's stvincentdayton.org to learn more about how you can get involved and or make a donation to the St. Vincent de Paul Society of Dayton to support their service to the homeless community. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it and my other creative endeavors at patreon.com slash songandstory. As always, sincerely, thank you for listening. I sleep and I like to sit out on my front porch on the porch swing and smoke a cigar and have a great bourbon and then uh, <laughs> what time what time is it on the swing with the bourbon oh it doesn't matter okay it could be late morning it could be, <laughs> it could be late evening and and then and then I'll I'll have some really good food from Dorothy Lane Market and then I'll go back to bed